Welcome to Action Potential. I'm Sahan Ranamukharachi. Our goal is to propagate ideas that can revolutionize medical care delivery. Join us as we amplify the voices of thought leaders, explore remote physiological monitoring, and ignite a wave of change. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Action Potential podcast. I'm joined today by Dr. George Bakris at University of Chicago. Uh, Dr. Bakris, and anyone in kidney care, anyone in hypertension knows who Dr. George Bakris is. So before I go on and tell you about Dr. Bakris, I'm going to have him tell you about his journey to becoming who he is. Um, I'm so excited to have you on the show, Dr. Bakris. Uh, please tell our audience about, about you and the work that you've done and what's gotten you to this point. Well, okay, thank you very much. I'm going to try to abbreviate this in one minute. Um, so I'm a uh, nephrologist, clinical pharmacologist on the faculty at the University of Chicago as a professor of medicine, and I direct the hypertension, the comprehensive hypertension center. And basically, um, I was very interested in physiology and uh, in the kidney as well as blood pressure. And over the years, started off in basic science, looking at diabetic kidney disease and then ultimately evolved as part of a sub-fellowship that I did in hypertension and got very interested in that. And obviously the two are intermingled. And so my research efforts have been both in hypertension and developing drugs and also in um, uh, diabetic kidney disease and slowing progression, especially over the last 20 years has been a relatively greater focus on diabetic kidney disease. Thank you, Dr. Bakris. Can you tell us a little bit about, so when you think about hypertension and diabetic kidney disease, those are kind of diabetes and hypertension are two things that actually lead to kidney disease, but not a lot of people are aware of that uh, beyond nephrologists who deal with this almost on a daily basis. Can you tell us a little bit about why those are such big risk factors for people um, who have diabetes and kid, uh, diabetes and hypertension, why those are such risk factors for people developing kidney, kidney failure? Well, let me give you a perspective. Um, if you go to the, since the 1990s, the incidence of obesity has been growing dramatically, no pun intended, worldwide. And salt consumption in spite of all the education and everything that's been gotten in general in the world is still very high. So diabetes, of course, is the natural legacy of obesity in most people. And salt is going to, in people as they get older, lead to more elevated pressures. If you take hypertension and diabetes together, they account for almost 70% of the people on dialysis. So it is by far in the world, not this U.S., in the world, by far the two most common causes of progressive kidney disease, as well as cardiovascular disease, and they are eminently reducible. You can slow them down independent of the GLP-1-RAs where you're dropping truckloads of weight. There We have the tools to slow things down. It's just the physician's are not giving the tools out or they're afraid to give the tools out or the insurance companies make it difficult to give the proper tools out. So it's some combination of those factors. So did you start off in kidney disease and think, well, everyone here has hypertension. I should look in, uh, I, I should explore a venture into hypertension or did it start the other way around? No, no, it, it, it 
really started with kidney disease and clearly the all the papers that I was reading clearly showed that hypertension was a big factor. But after doing a clinical pharmacology fellowship where that was where all the hypertension was in the institution, that's really what kind of put me over the top and really got me to look at this in the context of kidney disease progression. But uh, I understand that. That's, that's, really, that's really interesting. And I think that's a very, if you think about it from that sense, Dr. Bakris, there's more than 120 million people who have hypertension in the United States. Is it just as scary that, that the pipeline to kidney disease is growing by the day? It's, is it really that daunting? Well, it, it, you know, I thought it was amusing when the business people got horrified when Moderna and Ozempic came out and everybody's losing weight and the dialysis units are going to close tomorrow. Clearly, when you have no concept of natural history of medical diseases, you make stupid statements like that. So I think that the reality is that there is hope because weight loss certainly will help both conditions without any question, but it won't necessarily cure people. It will cure some people because if they keep the weight off, it'll be a good thing, but it's going to take years to have this. And the rate of progression in diabetic kidney disease is far faster than the rate of progression in hypertension. In diabetes, if you don't control blood pressure well, you could be on dialysis easily within 12 to 14 years, especially if blood sugar is not controlled. In fact, maybe even sooner. In hypertension, it's got to really not be controlled. And then you're talking about 15 to 18 years. But either way, you put the two together, it's a shorter period of time because they have additive negative effects. In fact, I think to, to that last statement, most of that comes together, right? Most, di most people who are di living with diabetes, type 1 and type 2, are actually concerned with hypertension to begin with. So the collective, uh, co the collective of the two is actually something that puts people at increased risk of well, uh, let me make a point. Failure. Let me make a point. And the point is this, that diabetes is a, yes, it's an abnormality in glucose, but that abnormality in glucose affects cells in the whole body, including the vascular cells. So the arteries are affected. Your atherosclerosis burden increases independent of cholesterol, although cholesterol will add the burden. And then if you had blood pressure increases to that, it further increases the burden. So there's a lot of vascular disease that is seen and the kidney is, if not the most vascular, definitely the number two vascular organ in the body followed by the liver. So it's a major uh, problem. Yeah. What's your, what's your mission, Dr. Vakris? Is it to, um, is it to find the source and try to change people from getting into kidney disease if you can find the right people with the right risk factor is that how you're thinking about it and is that what you work towards well that that you know if you take that approach which a lot of epidemiologists do um it's an optimistic approach because you can define the risk factors and then you're going to try to change the risk factors we've been doing that for 40 years 50 years and have failed miserably so now we have medications that will keep the weight off and that will help a lot but it ultimately comes in behavioral change. And you can talk to any psychiatrist or psychologist, behavioral change is far more difficult than even treating cancer. It's really a problem. So I think that with the tools that we have, if they can be used properly, 
and physicians are not scared to use them because right now the only people that I know of that are happy to use them are nephrologists and some endocrinologists and some cardiologists. I, specialists are not there because a lot of these medicines are, quote, diabetes medicines, but they're not really diabetes medicines. So what I'm talking about is in a recent publication in Diabetes Care in September, we were asked to write a review on this approach. And so what I did is I took a page out of the heart failure cardiologist and talked about pillars of therapy. So if you can be, if you can have a patient with diabetes and hypertension, if you can have them on a maximal dose of an AS or a RAS blocker, ACE or ARB, put them on a SGLT2, put them on finerenone, a non-steroidal MRA. All of these drugs are approved for the F, by the FDA for slowing kidney disease progression. And we know that if you use them in combination, you'll get further benefits on the heart and the kidney. And now we have the GLP-1-RAs. So there's no question if you use all four of those, you could almost normalize decline in kidney function uh, on the part of di people with diabetes and certainly help people with hypertension. But this is really for diabetes. Once you get rid of the diabetes, you can peel off some of these drugs as long as you can get the weight off. So that's really where we are. And, and what prevents people? So you're saying from, from a tools perspective, we're talking mostly therapies yep. that are available. What prevents people from, from using, using these tools? Are there the indications for which they are uh, currently uh, approved? Uh, are they fear factors for other reasons, unknowns about combinations? Can you give us some more? So there are, I would say number one, is, well, there's two and they're almost tied. One is a fear factor because all of these drugs, including the GLP-1 RAs, are going to reduce GFR anywhere from 10 to 25%. And people are scared of that because they don't understand it. And the second thing is hyperkalemia because certainly the RAS blockers, certainly the non-steroidal MRAs are definitely going to increase your risk for hyperkalemia. The SGLT2s actually protect you a little bit from hyperkalemia. And the GLP-1 RAs are neutral. So it's really that fear that goes on. And, and people haven't really been taught properly. The literature is out there. There's over 20 years of literature. And physicians should think of this drop in GFR with these drugs equal to the heart rate drop that you get with beta blockers. No one's arguing that heart rate reduction is good to a point with beta blockers. The same holds true with reduction in GFR when you're using these drugs because all of these drugs are approved to protect the kidney. All of these drugs cause a drop in GFR. And so they should not be concerned about that. Yes, the potassium will go up. And if you're borderline, the potassium will go higher. The people at risk for hyperkalemia are not everybody. The people at risk for hyperkalemia are people with a GFR of 45 or less and or those on a diuretic that already have an elevated potassium above four and a half. Now that's been known for over a decade. So that's the way you need to approach the patient. And they they agree, but then when they're at the bedside, they're scared to do it. I want to I want to jump into these three topics that you mentioned. First, wanna I want to understand the fear factor of the dropping of the GFR. Uh, because uh, and 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 the second point, hyperkalemia definitely you are the potassium expert. I want to dive deep into that. And then the third one is the 
what we see in guidelines versus real world evidence in clinical practice, they're not always the same, no. you know, and, and almost never the same. And so I want to kind of come back to the two fear factors and to uncover if that's the reason why clinical real world clinical practice really differs from clinical trials and guidelines. Um, so if, if we, if we double click into the drop in the GFR, Dr. Bakris, so you're saying a, a diabetic kidney patient at the onsets here and they're going downhill, but if you get these right tools of a, the RASI, uh, RASI inhibition, MRAs, non-steroidal MRAs, uh, SGLT2s and GLP1s, that's a lot of classes of drugs, by the way. So it's, it's a delicate balance to get those right. But you're saying we want to steady the, the decline but before you do that, there's going to be a drop and then steady decline. Is that is that how it, it actually works? There is an editorial that we published in the American Journal of Nephrology. It's a short piece. You can just look it up on PubMed. And we summarize all of the data. This was published in 2022. We summarize all of the data and put this into context. The big thing, I guess the easy way to think about this is if you have diabetic kidney disease and you have normal kidney function, so you just were diagnosed. You're going to be losing, on average, anywhere from 8 to 12 mLs per minute per year. And what does that mean? That means if you start at 100, and if you're losing, let's just make it easy, 10 mLs per minute per year. Well, in 10 years, if everything's equal, you're going to be on dialysis. Now, it's not quite that bad, but for sure in 15 years, you will be on dialysis. Now, that's if you do nothing. If you use RAS blockade, you'll slow things down to about 6 mLs per minute per year. If you use SGLT2s, you'll slow things down to about 3.5 mLs per minute per year. If you use phenarinone, you'll slow it down to about 2.5 mLs. So you're going, you're just, you're just right. really... Right, so you're slowly changing the, the slope. And then if you use all four, theoretically, you should almost normalize it. Normal decline is a little less than 1 mL. Per minute per year okay someone without present presenting uh, with someone nothing, without normal kidney people, disease normal people yeah so i yeah. think i think it's important to understand that you will have an impact and the what happens with gfr is you'll get an initial drop this is with whatever class you're talking about now except glp ones you'll get a reduction of about anywhere from 10 to 25 even up to 30 percent but and then it stabilizes and then if you continue to follow people on this regimen, it's a flat line, whereas the other line bisects and goes down. But but you start at 100 and you make this, uh, you're giving me the example, but I'm assuming you don't start at people no. with 100 because no. they're fine. So when, when do they start? They're at 60, I'm guessing. At right. Least. Well, no, that would be nice if they started at 60. Most of them are oh, actually okay. starting about 40. And okay. so, so if you, but if you think about it, 25 De decline suddenly with, with the medications. It's it's reasonable to think that the nephrologists are nervous and the cardiologists. The nephrologists that know the literature are not nervous because they're going to look at okay. potassium and they're going to be okay. Everybody else is very nervous, and okay. so it is. If you haven't been taught or you don't know this, yes, yeah, it is reasonable. But if you look in the guidelines, the kidney guidelines, which of course who's going to look at them but the kidney people. I mean, that's, <laughs> that is in there, but, um, you know, we, we didn't put it in the diabetes guidelines because we thought, well, that's a little too much, but it's alluded to in there and it's referenced. Okay. 
So again, right. it's in the subspecialty guidelines. And I think most internists aren't trained to deal with this stuff. They're, they're worried about acute kidney injury, acute kidney right. injury. You need a 50% reduction in GFR that's mm -hmm. sustained or confirmed. Right. So right. whenever you see a change in GFR, it's always good to repeat the, the test because the tests mm -hmm. are not perfect either. And right. that's when you know really what's going on. Right. I can also, but, but based on what you said, Dr. Backris, with this drop in GFR, I can almost sense from a patient's perspective, if they just got diagnosed with CKD3B, you know, and you start all these medications, which are going to give you so much more kidney life before you need to start dialysis. But suddenly, as a result of the medications, I'm now a CKD4 patient. And that must not be an easy thing to have a conversation uh, with patients about. They must not Physicians, well. well, let me say this. It, the conversation for me is easy because I tell the patient in advance that this could happen. Right. And I explain it to happen. them. Okay. Most nephrologists are not going to do that. The problem now is not a medical problem. It's a business problem. Our uh, administrative friends are too busy making money off of us. And so now what's happened is they've limited the time. They want us to see more people so they can bill more. The conversation you need to have, like what we're having with a patient, you need a minimum of 25 minutes to show them pictures, right. explain things to them so they understand it. Otherwise, they're yeah. going to think you either don't know what you're talking about or you're trying to hurt them. So yeah. it, it does require time. Now, I have the luxury of having the time, but most nice. of my colleagues do not, even if they know yeah. it. So it's a problem. Yeah. And and when, you, when you're talking about titrating and balancing four classes of therapies, it's easy for patients, I suppose, to think you're just piling on more and more medications on them. But really, you're really thinking about this strategy of decli declining the rate at which or reducing the rate at which the kidneys decline to two to three. Well, most people, most people, including me, are not going to let you pile on drugs unless you explain to them why you're doing it and what the purpose of it is. And yes. I, totally understandable. And uh, so I do that. Again, we're back to that four-letter word, time. Yeah. So there's yeah. the problem. Yeah. The human element of it is so important. Yeah. Okay. So we covered the, the GFR drop. Let's talk hyperkalemia. Okay. Uh, to, to your point, now you're balancing all these four therapies. Uh, you know, two, you clearly know the impacts of, uh, of these therapies on potassium levels. As the GFR drops, we know potassium imbalances are more likely, and these medications induce that. Can you walk us through a little bit about how you're balancing the Potassium Act and how, how that imp, uh, has implications on the, the getting the right medications for your patients and, and, and what happens to them? So first of all, let's go back to the basics. So we know the risk factors, GFR less than 45 or K greater than 4.5 mm -hmm. if you're on the, uh, a diuretic. In people like that, where I'm starting these therapies, I'm already aware that this could happen. So I tell them that the K could go up. We have to monitor it. And the number one thing they can do is reduce their diet, go it on a low potassium diet, which is very difficult because a low potassium diet means you're going to cut out about 65% of your fruits and vegetables. Um, right. I mean, the, healthy, the healthy stuff. The healthy stuff. Everybody thinks about, you know, bananas. Bananas are, mm. by the way, tomatoes, a large tomato has got much more potassium than a banana. Pizza. 
Pizza, well, pizza. Tomato based pizza, pizza is a kiss pasta, of death. Right? If you want to die happy, <laughs> you can have a pizza, and there you go. So I think it's 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 important. The other thing to keep in mind is it's not the level of potassium; it's the rate of rise. Now the bad news is mm-hmm. you don't know what the rate of rise was, but if it did right. go up slowly, I've seen people with potassiums of close to eight, and they just didn't feel good. I've also seen mm. people with potassiums of six and a half having their heart stopped. So it depends mm-hmm. on where you are on that scale. Right. I do not pull the trigger on anybody uh, if I know they need these therapies until it gets around five and a half. Five and a half, five and a half is my cut point, And then I back off a little bit. But I make sure everybody's on the appropriate diuretic. Everybody's using low doses. I mean, I've seen people using inappropriate diuretics in people with low kidney function. So you need to use a good loop diuretic to really get rid of more potassium. That's really right. And it's a diuretic. It's a, so we talked about the four classes of therapies that you would uh, use in a diabetic kidney patient. Uh, the, the, are the diuretics the fifth just to manage potassium? The diuretics are generally there for managing hypertension. And okay, so okay. for sure, by default, if you want to manage potassium, then you want to make sure they're on the right diuretic for potassium. So thiazide diuretics, with the exception of, and even thiazide-like diuretics, with the exception of endapamide and chlorothaladone, they're not going to get rid of a lot of potassium in people with advanced kidney right. disease. And so right. if they've already got an elevated potassium and they're on a thiazide, I switch them to a loop. Because I, and, and specifically, I use torsamide because it's got a much longer half-life than Lasix or Bumetanide. So right. for that reason, I use that. And it gives you a little bit more of a buffer, but not that much more. Right. So, so you're a risk, let's, let's call you a risk-taking nephrologist. You're happy to wait till, until a patient ends up at 5.5. Right. What do the rest of your colleagues do? Well, in my academic sphere, so I'm only going to speak of my academic sphere, um, I, it's a mixed bag. There's definitely a subgroup that are with me and will take the approach. And if you do anything less, they think it's malpractice. And then there's another group that's kind of in between. They'll let the K go up to 5.2, 5.3, and they'll intervene. Now, those people are generally in practice. They're not in academia. And when you're in practice, you're far busier than you are in academia, at least with patients. And the nurses think nothing of making a phone call. So you'll be inundated with phone calls, Mrs. Jones's potassium is this, and you got to deal with it. They're not going to sit there and be academic and say, well, let's see, it's 5.5 and they're on these meds. That's not what nurses do. So it's really the, what I call the pestering index is minimized if you intervene earlier because you stave off any potential problems. Yeah. And so how do you figure out of all these kind of medications you use, you probably have your main candidates, but how do you figure out which ones are causing hyperkalemia or the risk of potassium getting closer to 5.3, 5.5? Well, if you take diet out of the equation, and by the way, diet is probably about 70% of this, Then the other drugs that are going to cause, there's a list of drugs that will cause hyperkalemia. The patient very innocently has joint pain or something like that. They'll pop a couple of Motrin or they'll pop an Aleve or something over the counter. Well, if they only take one pill, it's not a big deal. But if they start taking repeatedly on a daily basis, 
that can raise your potassium significantly. So that's mm-hmm. one thing. Obviously, sulfa antibiotics, especially things like Bactrim, those will raise your potassium. The trimethophan and, and Bactrim will do that. And then there's a list of other drugs that will do it, not as commonly used, but still right. other things that you can be taking. So you got to go through that list to make sure that that's right. not an issue. Okay. But uh, how, how does seeing potassium, so we talked about the strategy to get patients on the right medications to prevent that GFR decline uh, or minimize the GFR decline. How does the presentation of hyperkalemia then impact the patient? So you're, you're constantly thinking 70% of the hyperkalemia might come from the diet, but the, the 30% that comes from medications, like the clinicians think, I'm not going to be chasing the, the patient around through my nurse, giving phone calls back and forth. It's best to to take away some of the medications. Is that what happens? And then uh, in in clinical, in real world practice, then that leads to faster decline of the kidneys? In real world practice, whether you're talking about heart failure or whether you're talking about advanced kidney disease, the first drug that will be eliminated immediately will be the mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist. So either the, the non-steroidal or the steroidal, it doesn't matter. They're going to be gone in a nanosecond. And then they'll reevaluate what's going on. And then if it's still a problem, the RAS blocker goes away. And then usually by then, everything is fine. But now, if you do that, you've taken away at least 50% of the support system that the patient needs to slow progression of kidney disease. You don't figure that and you argue, well, they can't tolerate it. Well, there's other things you can do to get them to tolerate it, including using potassium binders. But if you're going to do that, a lot of people have not been trained appropriately. All they know is KXLate, and KXLate's worthless. I mean, you can use it for a couple of days, but then patients don't tolerate it. So the newer agents are very expensive, and the insurance companies, unless you've got really good insurance, will not allow them. So it's a real problem, but we use them all the time, and we, you know, get by with it. But a lot of physicians, especially those in practice in community hospitals, don't have access to these things. So, so Dr. Bakris, now we see the, the, the MRAs are the first to go when you see hyperkalemia, then the RASI blockade, RASI inhibition. Um, how, do you, how do you make sure that the potassium is, is, is managed? So what's your current practice today? You, you mentioned two things before. One is it's not just about the level of potassium, it's the rate of change. How do you understand this, especially as patients dose all of these medications that you're prescribing, but perhaps even other ones that you touched on that someone else might prescribe for other issues that they might have uh, that could mess with potassium levels. So how are you monitoring these patients in order to make these decisions on what medications to, to keep them on and, and to take them off of? Well, first of all, you, it's impossible to know what the rate of change in potassium is. That, that, there's just no way. It, I mean, unless you're monitoring them in a the lab, there's no way you can know that. So that's out. So really, is, is that a, is that ever a feasible a feasible solution? No. I mean, I know the answer to this, but, but people often ask, why can't people do send phlebotomists home and do measurements uh, all the time? But no, no, potassium is changing. First of all, potassium is an intracellular cation, and it's mm-hmm. changing all the time. And right. so it's that change that is variable, and it depends on how much is entered into the body. 
and in, or and I guess in this case, how much the kidney is allowing to enter into the body from what you've taken in. So, so food, so food brings it in, and as you said, uh, yep. all the healthy foods bring it in. Kidneys take it out. Right. And whatever, if there's an imbalance here, you're taking too much in, the kidneys are not working properly, then the cells as an intracellular cation try to manage and, and equilibrate the potassium levels that, that are in the, in the bloodstream. Right. Um, and okay. So, so now that we that's, understand a little bit of the basics. Right. No, 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 that's fine. So, so basically if you, the only way you can get a handle on this is to educate the patient and the patient has to be a vigilant enough person to not only pay attention to the diet that they're eating, but they've also got to pay attention to the medications that they're taking. And the only way you can know by just looking at the chart without seeing the patient is to look at the med list and make sure that it's up to date so that everything is there. But you still don't have the over-the-counter stuff. So that's why you have to ask the patient about some of these things. Because, I mean, there was an epidemic, just to show you how innocent this can be. There was an epidemic of hyperkalemia years ago in an academic hospital that I was at. And nobody could figure out what was going on. And ultimately what happened is my fellow went during the dinner service to see what was being given. And the kitchen was giving out salt substitute, which is potassium chloride. And that's why we had the epidemic because they said, well, you said no salt. So this is no salt. Yeah, exactly. So, you Uh, know, it's very simple things can cause a lot of problems. An anti-hypertensive kitchen using potassium chloride instead of sodium chloride for salt. Interesting. Um, but so it's really, so, so what you're saying is it's really that important and immediate, the impact of diet on potassium levels. Um, because from, for, I assume for someone with healthy kidneys, the, in the innate mechanisms take care of this, you know, the kidneys filter everything out. So we'll, we won't see bumps. No, no, you won't. If you have kidney function down even to 60, Unless somebody's taking in inordinate amounts of potassium, you'll be fine. And for sure, if the GFR is 80 or above, you won't see any problems with potassium. If you do, there's something genetic going on. So right. you you really need to understand that we're talking really about people with established kidney disease where they've lost more than half their kidney function. Right. So people ask me uh, from... Uh, from people who know about the the glucose monitors, Dr. Backris, they ask, you know, glucose is changing all the time. We can see it. And people with, you know, insulin-dependent diabetes, it's constantly fluctuating and you can't get get good control of it. So it's minute to minute. Is potassium minute to minute? Is potassium hour to hour? Is it, or does it slowly change over days? So this is... No, if it slowly changed over days, we we wouldn't be be so bad. Yeah. No, no, it's it's changing, uh, I would say, for sure, minute to minute, because there's always this flux of anions between and cations between cells to maintain a balance. I mean, that's what it's all about. And where you get into disruptions is when the kidney can't maintain that balance because it's overwhelmed with the amount of potassium. So fundamentally, if you had something that could measure it on a minute to minute basis or even a couple of minutes to a couple of minutes basis would be definitely an improvement because then you could see you ate a tomato and what's your potassium? Well, it's gone up 0.8. Okay. Well, where, what does that mean? 
and then you'd have your critical limits and you could look at it just like glucose. So that would right. be very important, especially in people with kidney disease. Is that the target state for potassium you'd hope to see one day? I would love to see that. I would love to see that. Nephrologists would love to see that because then they could educate the patients. So the patients would know, just like glucose. The patients would then know what their dietary restraints are because they're going to test things. And then if the nurses know that they've been monitoring it, the patients have been monitoring it, they're going to feel more comfortable because when a nurse sees it, they figure, okay, this is the first time this is happening. This is a big problem. So we need right. to do something. Whereas if they look at the log and they say, well, this happened three or four times over here, it's going to be a more systematic approach. Right. And what are your patients appropriately aware of potassium uh, in order to, to do that on a, on a glucose type basis? Um, I'm not sure what you mean, because I think I know what you mean. There's no monitor. There's no way to measure potassium now. Yeah. So they're yeah. not aware of anything available right. because if they are, then be asking me, why didn't you tell me? Right. So that's not available. If it were available, would they like it? Yes. The majority okay. I think would say yes. Okay. Anyone below uh, GFR 45, you said who need to actually, they, they're potassium. a must, they're a must. Okay. But really, okay. below 60, they're at risk. Okay, they're at risk. Yeah. Now, talk to me a little bit about potassium binders, because part of the major promise of these new agents for, for lowering potassium was really, hey, if you have hyperkalemia, which is this big risk factor we've talked about during this conversation, don't discontinue your therapies. Keep, you, keep the patients on RAS inhibit, inhibition. Keep them on MRAs. Uh, we know potassium is going to be a problem. Just use these these therapies. Besides cost, as you talked about from a business standpoint, because they are expensive, uh, are they used appropriately? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I'm going to give you a bias answer because the only experience I actually have is what I see. And most of what I see is in my academic institution. I would say there, yes, they're used very appropriately. Uh, I know they're given as when patients go home, as outpatients, they're given these. And then the ones that the insurance will cover, they use them. And the ones that don't, don't. Right. Um, you, if you take either one, whatever potassium binder you want to pick, it doesn't matter. Yeah. If they both will reduce potassium nicely from the area of around five and a half down to about 4.8. And they can maintain it there if you use it daily up to a year. Right. Totally safe. Now, one does have constipation as a side effect. The other one, when you use high doses, has an excessive sodium amount. So in people with right. heart failure, it could be an issue. I'm not saying it right. is, but it could be. Mm -hmm. So those are the only concerns. Everything else is pretty, they're pretty well tolerated. But the cost right. is exorbitant. And, um, and that's a major problem. Right. And so, uh, so what, what would you, what kind of, right now, what get you, gets you very excited about this area? Because you've been studying uh, hyperkalemia and uh, general transition of people from diabetes into kidney disease, from hypertension into kidney disease for a while. What are some of the things for our, uh, for our listeners that, that they should be very optimistic about in the future of, uh, of kidney care? Uh, and maybe even pertaining to potassium, because that's something that you spend an enormous amount of time on. So I, I would say this. I would say this, that number one, um, the time is coming 
Um, I'm not sure when it's going to be, but it's coming because there's there's things in the press by major figures in medicine that people like me are fed up with the 15 minute or less visit. So hopefully that will change. Uh, Number two, the patients that I've got now, it's only a small number, probably about 10 that are hyperkalemic on potassium binders, and I maintained them on therapy. If you compare them to similar people, not on binders, because they didn't want to take them or couldn't, their decline in kidney function going out over the last five years is slower because Mm -hmm. they're on the medicine. So this does work. This is not a theoretical principle. But the fear of American physicians to recruit patients to prove it resulted in these trials not happening. So, you know, it's like we we know they work. We want to prove to you they work and you won't let us prove that they work. So we don't understand. But how big of trials are we talking? Oh, these are hundreds of people. I mean, these are not, uh, I mean, in in the case of the one trial, it was an outcome trial. So there's over 1,200 people. And in the second trial, it was not an outcome trial as in terms of mortality, but there were cardiovascular events. And that was to the tune of 700 plus. So, and what happened in these trials? What did they did? What did they show? Or what was the intention, and what was what was the end result? The intention was to show a outcome benefit in both of them. Okay. Both trials were stopped early because it was virtually impossible, or close to impossible, to recruit the adequate number of patients in an adequate time period. Okay. And so it was becoming very expensive to continue doing the trial when you didn't have enough people, and didn't look like you were going to have enough people for at least another couple of years. So it just wasn't what, feasible. What was the reason for not being able to recruit the patients, Dr. Baxter? You know, it's very interesting. It, it was, it was. I'm not sure how to put this delicately. It was a relative lack of U.S. physicians wanting to recruit those patients. And it, was, it wasn't that the patients didn't want to be in it. It was a lack of recruitment of the patients. So the patients were not being asked because physicians were not doing it, that was a U.S. issue. That was not an international issue. So there's some issue here that my guess is probably comes back to cost and time and what have you, which is really unfortunate. But it it wasn't necessarily the fear because these physicians, I mean, we had meetings with them and things got better after the meetings, Mm -hmm. but we couldn't meet with everybody. And so, and I know in that meeting, time came up as a factor. Yeah. Yeah. Spending more time with your patients to walk them through that journey and why they're on certain types of medications and the monitoring plants um, all hopefully will lead to better care. Um, Dr. Bakris, as we kind of as we bring this um, recording and meeting to a close, is there anything that you'd like our listeners to know further uh, about uh, that we didn't touch on? Maybe anything interesting that we couldn't get our time to? I mean, there's a lot of things that are interesting that are coming, but they're not going to be here for another three or four years. So there's no point in talking about them. I do, I think, want to leave you with a message that we have the tools today to virtually stop kidney disease decline from diabetes without any question. And if not stopping it, stopping it, slowing it down so much that you're going to die by getting hit by a car rather than ending up on dialysis. But Physicians have to be perseverant. The patients have to be educated. And this is a work together project. So you understand why 
you're on what you're on. And business needs to facilitate this to reduce costs. And Medicare should care because this will dramatically reduce morbidity costs because you'll have less heart failure, less people in the emergency room. And so that is what I would say. You, you must enjoy the attention that Medicare and payers are paying now because everyone's starting to realize how expensive kidney disease is if we don't get ahead of that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Dr. Bakris, thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for educating us on GFR drops, hyperkalemia, and physician fears uh, in kidney disease. Uh, and at some point, uh, we'd love to have you back on the show to kind of reassess how things are, and hopefully it's different. Great. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure being here.